tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Spikes is free and it always will be, which is why we need your help. We don't have a paywall or bonus content for paying customers because we want our arguments for freedom and democracy against misanthropy and identity politics to reach as many people as possible. This is why we ask those of our listeners and readers who can afford to, to chip in. One-off donations are hugely appreciated, but monthly donations are even better. They allow us to plan for the future and to grow. Even £5 a month is a huge help. It's much cheaper than your average magazine subscription, and it ensures that Spiked is free and open to all. To make either a monthly or a one-off donation, just go to spikes-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now on with the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week as ever we have Spiked deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the coronavirus budget, the unravelling of the SNP and the cancellation of Dr Seuss. The enormous cost of shoring up the economy has been spelled out by the Chancellor in today's budget. In the first two years, it's spend, spend, spend. But then it switches to an aggressive series of tax hikes and spending cuts. The furlough extended to September. We're going long. What we got was a budget that papered over the cracks rather than rebuilding the foundations. Chancellor Rishi Sunak unveiled his first official budget since the UK entered lockdown last year. At the last budget, a year ago, Sunak expected to set aside just £12 billion in funding for measures to cope with the coronavirus. This week, he revealed that government spending on the pandemic has reached £407 billion. And even as the restrictions are wound down, we learned that the furlough scheme, which was announced on the 20th of March last year, will be extended to September 2021. Sunak also announced a number of other measures designed to spur investment from free ports to public investment banks and investment tax breaks. But he also warned that we would need to balance the books and proposed a series of tax rises to do so. Having experienced the worst economic crisis since the Industrial Revolution, Britain's economic output is not expected to recover to pre-pandemic levels until 2022. Tom, what are your thoughts on this budget? I think it it was pretty depressing on two levels. The first of all was the way in which it just underlined the scale of the economic devastation that the pandemic and our long, hard lockdown is inflicted. But it also made clear just the dearth of ambition that there seems to be in government or anywhere, frankly, it, as we edge towards getting out all of this. So as you say, the extension of the furlough, welcome for many workers, I'm sure, although always worth remembering for many of them, it involves a 20% pay cut. I mean, that just underlines how deep the impact of all of this is going to be, how the pain of this is going to last for many companies and for many workers, even after the restrictions are lifted. And you made this point on Spike this week, Fraser, that it basically kind of tacitly accepts that many of those jobs are basically now gone mm. and that this is a kind of off-ramp to unemployment for many of the people on that scheme. 
And then on the broader scope, you get the sense that the best the government is really hoping for is just like a slow, painful return to the failing economy we had before. <laughs> we even hit this crisis in the first place. This is a point that Phil Mullen makes in, a, in his piece on Spike this week about the budget and the way forward. He makes the point that this promised growth revival, such as it is, would be even sicklier than Britain's recovery in the decade after the financial crisis. Mm. So there is this big rebound predicted, but the, the growth forecasts after 2023 are really anemic, you know, and this is something which is, is nothing really to celebrate. And there's just no attempt to try and grapple with the things that made our economy and other Western economies so fragile ahead of the pandemic, things that Phil Mullen's been writing about for a long time, that protracted collapse in productivity growth, the fact that the state was basically propping up all of these zombie businesses. And as a result of all this, a lot of people with stagnant living standards and low wages. There's just no reckoning with that whatsoever. You know, there's a bit about free ports, which gets a certain type of libertarian, almost erotically excited, but as a prospect <laughs> is slightly untested at this point. We'll see what happens. Certainly not going to transform society in and of itself. There's the super deduction. But again, none of this seems to recognise the scale of the problem. There's been a lot of talk recently about World War II, about the scale of this crisis, and about the need for bold thinking after that. But even in the teeth of the Second World War, there was genuine transformative thinking going on about what the international order would look like, about what the domestic settlement would be. We're seeing nothing of that now. And so the immediate impact of the pandemic and lockdown is clear from the budget we're still going to be struggling with for some time to come. But there is just no broader vision beyond that. It feels like beyond a few pet projects and shiny things that get certain people in the commentariat excited. Ella? Yeah, in particular, it's been really frustrating to see the the commentary on, or actually Rishi Sunak's use of the extension of the furlough scheme as a kind of cover for what actually is going on. Because, I mean, any reasonable person would suggest that you need the furlough scheme to continue if the government is going to continue the threat of lockdown. And there's lots of people on social media talking about the fact that the announcement of the continuation of the furlough scheme <laughs> gives you doubts about the kind of concreteness of the date of the 21st of June of reopening. And that's, that's for another discussion. But just giving people handouts, which essentially is what the furlough scheme is. And in fact, not, not even a scheme that is worker-based, but is employer-based and kind mm. of holding off businesses, many of which will inevitably end up sacking their employees when the furlough scheme ends. It does nothing to assure people or help people think about their quality of life and their quality of work in the future, because we are in the middle of the worst recession for 300 years. And anyone who thinks that Rishi Sunak's budget goes any way to making any kind of radical steps to mitigate or change that is deluded. I mean, in particular, it's not just the furlough scheme thing that's been irritating me, but the question of his kind of green credentials and his commitment to things like a net zero innovation portfolio are really telling. So Sunak in his announcement said, we are going to have to do things that have never been done before and that we've got a real commitment to green growth and a real commitment to creating jobs. Framing it in green terms as if his plans are radical and, you know, breaking new ground. When in fact, as Phil and others have pointed out, there is nothing anywhere near radical enough in terms of changes to the makeup of the economy, to the underlying problems. 
people are talking about employment levels. And obviously we're in the middle of a huge bubble that's about to burst in terms of people's jobs, one because of the furlough scheme, but also because we're still in that sort of period of the pandemic where we're not quite out of it yet. And so we aren't seeing the repercussions of it yet. And you just know that there are going to be very serious repercussions, primarily for working class people and people on the lower end of the income scale when this is all over. But Never mind the quantity of jobs and how many, the levels of unemployment, how many people are actually in work. The more crucial question for the long term is the quality of jobs, whether it be the ability for people to progress, the ability for people to retrain, to, you know, move up in the world, to improve their quality of life, to have jobs that are actually interesting, stable, have basic levels of rights, all these things. It's been a problem for a long time. You know, it's not just in relation to zero hours contracts, but raises the question, well, why are so many people in this country in jobs which are so precarious and can be evaporated at the drop of a hat? So there's nothing exciting about Rishi Sunak's proposals, but but I think actually more crucially, there are some very worrying trends in there, in particular, the emphasis on being green, which essentially is the most anti-growth position a politician can take. It's inherently anti-growth. So just don't believe the hype. Yeah. Often the green stuff comes across as almost like a camouflage. It's, it's getting people used to this new era of low productivity and low growth that makes a virtue out of it almost. It's extraordinary just the level of denial that is on display, not just from the Chancellor, who was who sounded really upbeat when delivering all of these assessments and all of his new shiny policies, but also from the commentariat and from Labour as well. It's astonishing how quickly that even in the middle of the deepest recession since the 18th century, effectively, we have gone back to this stupid debate over how will we balance the books, what tax rises go up, what level of fuel duty should there be, all this ridiculous tinkering that makes no difference to the underlying structure of the economy. And even where things have actually radically changed beneath the surface, it's not really discussed. So, you know, one aspect I haven't seen anyone mention, I don't think Sunak mentioned it, I haven't seen any of the broadcast journalists mention it, is the fact that all of this pandemic spending was essentially funded by the Bank of England. They created this money out of thin air and, you know, one arm of the state owes it to another arm of the state. And there seems to be no questioning for this. You know, I, I want to know, is that sustainable? If it's not sustainable, when is it going to be wound down? And if it is sustainable, are there other uses for it? But it's just completely ignored. These huge tectonic shifts in economic policy making that are going on elsewhere, not where the Chancellor is, and no one seems to be talking about it. Meanwhile, the Chancellor, who should be proposing a radical departure from a failed status quo, it doesn't seem to be up to the job. And is essentially, as we've said many times before, is essentially trying to preserve the kind of old decrepit system. And in the long run, that is going to be much more harmful. Tom? It's just become so clear now that any kind of reckoning with the state of the economy, as we've been talking about, is just not going to happen. And this is just recent history repeating itself. We saw exactly mm. the same thing in the wake of the financial crisis. I mean, even in the run up to this, Britain had only grown at like pre-crash rates in one year, in the 10 years since the crash. This is something which was never really properly addressed. And when you think about the scale of what we're looking at now, the paucity of the debate therefore matters a hell of a lot. The response from Labour, which you gestured to there, Fraser, is remarkable. Because on the one hand, you have them being really quite strikingly politically outfoxed 
by Sunak because you have pretty woolly thinking from Keir Starmer, which is trying to look like he can be competent on fiscal matters and so not wanting to back a corporation tax rise, at least not immediately, and therefore tying himself in knots and getting himself into warfare with his party at the same time. And then this response from backbenchers, which is basically to accuse the Tories of stealing all of their policies, whether it be the corporation tax hike or whether it be the National Infrastructure Bank, all of which they say was straight out of McDonald's ideas, but again, just underlines how unradical their proposals are. If your clothes are so easily stolen by the Tory party, then surely there's something wrong with that in the first place. And just on all sides, you see a refusal, as you say, Fraser, to break out of that very deadening economic discussion that we've had towards something genuinely transformative. And the thing that kind of worries you is that if the biggest recession for 300 years is not enough to break people out of that kind of thinking, to think about doing things differently, to think about trying to fundamentally restructure the economy so that it's stronger and can produce better outcomes for people, what will? Mm. And that seems the, th- the thing that's so depressing as we come out of this week is that, again, the paucity of the debate is just so stark still. I don't know about you, but in my free time, I always want to feel like I'm doing something to stretch my brain to cut down on mindless scrolling and actually learn something. So to keep learning more, I watch and listen to The Great Courses Plus. This is a streaming service that lets you learn with purpose, and I know you'll love it too. With The Great Courses Plus, you have unlimited access to thousands of video and audio lectures on hundreds of fascinating topics. Learn a new language, discover what Einstein got wrong, even gain valuable insights into your own public persona. There really is something for everyone. I'm currently enjoying their course on the long 19th century, European history from 1789 to 1917. In this course, you'll learn all about the key events that gave birth to the modern world we live in today, from the ideals of the French Revolution and the economic transformation of the Industrial Revolution to the horrors of the First World War. The courses are all taught by the best professors and top experts in their fields, and the material is all extensively vetted and researched. It's high-quality content, reliable, fact-based information you can trust. Plus, with the Great Courses Plus app, you're free to watch, listen, and learn on any device at any time, no matter where you are in the world. I'm so glad I found a more productive way to spend my time. And I want you to try The Great Courses Plus too. Get started with a free trial of unlimited access. Just visit our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. That's 14 days to learn anything you want for free. So sign up now. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon was questioned this week at the inquiry into her government's handling of harassment complaints against her predecessor Alex Salmond. Salmond has in all but name accused Sturgeon's government of a conspiracy to damage his reputation and to have him imprisoned. The row became even more explosive thanks to numerous attempts by the Scottish state to conceal information from the inquiry. Last month, the Crown Office, Scotland's prosecutors, ordered the most incriminating aspects of Alex Salmond's evidence to be redacted. This week, the Scottish Government tried to defy a vote in Parliament to publish the legal advice it received in relation to pursuing Salmond. This was only published after opposition parties looked likely to win a vote of no confidence against Sturgeon's deputy. 
Spiked columnist Tim Black has been following this saga closely and he joins us down the line now. Tim, there's clearly something rotten in the state of Scotland, but can you tell us briefly how we got here? Well, in terms of this actual uh, story of you know, Salmon's fall from grace, this starts in 2018 when there are two complaints of sexual misconduct levelled against him, uh, which the government pursues in an internal investigation. And that's actually when these problems start, because that investigation turns out to have been sort of badly botched. Uh, I think largely because the person carrying out the investigation had had prior contact with the two complainants, which therefore prejudiced uh, the investigation. But anyway, this investigation starts in 2018. It is subject to a judicial review brought about by Alex Salmond, which casts doubt on the investigation and eventually judicial review rules in Salmon's favour and says that the investigation was, I, I think the word was subject to a certain amount of bias. So there was this botched investigation. It actually does culminate in a criminal trial at which Salmond is cleared of all charges. But then we get to the second part, which is the inquiry, the parliamentary inquiry into the botched or the mishandling of the government's investigation into Salmond. And that's the occasion, if you like, for, I guess, Salmond's uh, charges of a conspiracy theory against him. And it's also an opportunity for Sturgeon uh, to rebut those claims. And at the moment, we're dealing with the aftermath of this botched investigation and the parliamentary inquiry into that investigation. And that has proved a, an occasion for the uh, venting of Salmond's conspiracy theory and, and, and Sturgeon's attacks on, on Salmond. But I think the the larger story here, I think which you alluded to actually, uh, Fraser, in your introduction, is that what the parliamentary inquiry into the government's mishandling of the Salmond investigation has revealed has been the Scottish government's you know desperate attempt to avoid accountability. Uh, we've heard stories of them withholding documents and evidence from the parliamentary inquiry committee. We've seen, as you mentioned, the Crown Office, which is the equivalent of the Crown Prosecution Service in England and Wales. We've seen that redact Salmon's submission to the inquiry, which you could argue was a neutral decision, except for the fact that the Crown Office happens to be headed up by James Wolfe, who is a member of the S&P cabinet. Uh, so he's a part of the government. So you've got, again, a kind of conflict of interest. So we have this murky mess at the moment in which the, the Scottish government is starting to appear as an entity which is dedicated towards its own self, self-preservation, which is desperate to avoid all accountability, desperate to resist all scrutiny. And it's that, I think, which is perhaps the key issue in this whole sort of fiasco. Tom? I think picking up on that point that Tim made there, almost the most concerning testimony we saw this week was not from Nicola Sturgeon, who quite deftly, I think, came out for that committee hearing with her political position intact, but that of the Lord Advocate who runs the Crown Office, and as Tim was saying, is also, for some reason, a serving member of Sturgeon's cabinet, because that point at which they pressured Parliament into redacting and censoring Alex Salmon's evidence is so concerning because it obviously limited what Alex Salmon could then discuss when he addressed the committee last week, and also what Nicola Sturgeon would then be questioned about when she faced them. So to put it lightly, there's a very bad whiff coming off all of this. And as as Tim says, what you get the sense is that you have an SNP, which is both willing and apparently able, given the way that devolution is set up in Scotland, to potentially use the power of the law and the state to try and meet its own political ends, not necessarily to the ends of some great anti-Alex Salmond conspiracy, but purely to try and make a 
investigation that looks very, very bad for them and might compromise the first minister, just go away. And I think that's something which is, is really quite alarming, even in that, in that evidence from the Lord Advocate, the way in which he was almost throwing his weight around and making clear to all of the MSPs that they didn't enjoy parliamentary privilege and they should basically watch what they say. I mean, this is not what a healthy democratic process looks like. And I think, as, as Tim was saying, you just see an SNP at the middle of it that is both willing and it seems able to be able to use these institutions in a situation where they are so dominant to their own political ends. And I think that's the really concerning thing coming off all of this, aside from the slightly more wild claims made by Alex Sand in the past week and beyond. Ella? What strikes me that there's two things happening here. One is the kind of unravelling of something that no one should really be surprised by, which is that there's a huge amount of dirty goings on behind the scenes in politics. And while Tim's completely right to say that, you know, Alex Salmon might be kind of indulging in some level of conspiracy theory, it's also not unreasonable to imagine that, you know, the, the botching of these investigations didn't happen by accident. Big surprise, things like this happen in politics, especially among people who were previously so close as Sturgeon and Salmon were. But rather than this being a question of the SNP's dealings and, and the way in which it treats democratic processes, it seems to me that more what's happened in the kind of the spectacle of the days of giving evidence from both Salmon and Sturgeon has been a kind of the retrial of, of Salmon's sexual misconduct, particularly when he was given evidence last week. I mean, it was like every <laughs> MSB that stood up just wanted to get a dig in about what a kind of filthy bastard Salmon had been and, and how terrible his actions were, which is fair enough, but it wasn't necessarily the reason for this whole shebang. You know, it, that question has to a certain extent, as Tim and Tom have said, been decided by criminal investigations. And in particular, the way in which it's been reframed as a sort of retrial of Salmon has been the way in which some commentators have talked about it. I mean, there's been a certain amount of conversation on social media about the terrible situation we have on the eve of International Women's Day that a female politician like Nicola Sturgeon could be brought down by such an odious pig as Alex Salmond. And doesn't it tell you just everything you need to know about sexism and politics? One MSP from the Scottish Tories, Murdo Fraser, asked Sturgeon during her moment under the spotlight whether she wanted to apologise for what had happened. And this was leaped upon by, in particular, the Scottish press as an example of sexism, you know, asking a woman to apologise for the conduct of a man. And it, it, that is, I think, clouding and distracting from what really is the question, as Tim has said, which is what's going on here. It's not just the breakdown of a personal relationship. It's not just about the conduct of, you know, a man who, whether or not he was convicted, is obviously quite, quite grotesque, salmoned. Um, this is about the health of the SNP. And I mean, the takeaway I get from it is what an incredibly poxy party that this is what they're troubled by when there are so much bigger political questions going on, not just the pandemic, but also the question of the relationship with the European Union and Brexit and all that. And they're bickering over something like this is quite telling. It seems as if the dominance of the SNP relies to a great extent on the void created by the collapse of the other parties. I mean, particularly Labour north of the border, rather than there being anything particularly great about the SNP. I mean, there's been loads of commentary about how they've failed in education and health and even just on the basic kind of competence tests, they failed them, but still, you know, managed to be returned to every Scottish election, it seems. And one thing about this episode is that it seems to have removed some of the halo from Nicola Sturgeon, at least south of the border, because there's a lot of English people 
and Welsh people and other parts of the UK who look up to Sturgeon as a kind of a bulwark against Brexit or a bulwark in, during the pandemic against the alleged uh, libertarianism of the, of the Conservative government running running England's um, lockdown policy. So it's good to have that kind of shine taken off. But it is telling that this has come about as a result of kind of an internal factional dispute rather than a serious kind of political challenge to the SNP, to their brand of independence or to the kind of you know politics that they're, that they're pushing. Tim, do you want to say something? Ella's right that a lot of the focus has been on it as a salmon versus sturgeon dispute. And also, to an extent, on relitigating the original Salmond trial. And that, in some ways, is actually part of the SNP's attempt to deflect attention from their actual incompetence, their actual mishandling of the investigations, to deflect attention from their poor governance, certainly in this specific case. Like, it was interesting watching Sturgeon yesterday. She, she was actually incredibly comfortable, despite the fact she talked about how awkward she was, talking endlessly about salmoned about his personality, about her relationship with him, about how close she was to him, about how difficult and invidious, she used the word invidious a lot, how it put her in a terribly invidious position having to confront the poor behaviour of Alex Salmond. And it was frustrating because the inquiry committee before which she was speaking uh, was established to investigate the mishandling of the investigation. It had nothing to do with the actual allegations made against Salmond. It was an investigation into how it was mishandled and botched. So once again, the SNP has managed to kind of manoeuvre attention away from the issue at stake here, which is its poor governance, and shifted onto something which is not at stake here, which was actually at stake in the criminal trial in March 2020. So once again, it's the, the way in which the SNP proves itself incredibly adept at avoiding scrutiny. Also, I think you're, you're right, Fraser. I think part of the problem is that she's subject to so little scrutiny, both because of the absence of a political opposition in Scotland and also because of her almost deification south of the border, because of the way in which she's created the SNP and Scotland almost as a kind of a, a pro-EU territory at the moment. So I think what the whole Salmond affair and, and, and the way in which we've seen events unfold over the past week has revealed is what has been so lacking in the debate both north and south of the border in relation to Scotland, which is scrutiny, proper scrutiny of the SNP, of its mode of governance, of its policy making in you know serious areas, education and health, and how it's managed to dodge that scrutiny for far, far too long. So hopefully now, after we've seen you know quite how incompetent and worse the SNP is at governing, it might be subject to a little bit more scrutiny and some of its power called to account. Spikes is producing more content than ever. And I know you want to keep up with all the fantastic articles, essays, podcasts, and interviews that we're publishing every day. If you never want to miss anything we do, make sure you sign up to our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spike team, usually Tom Slater or myself. To get all of that, just go to spikes-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked now. Now, back to the Spikes podcast. Dr. Seuss's beloved cartoons are usually celebrated every year on his birthday, the 2nd of March, on National Dr. Seuss Day. 
This day coincides with Read Across America Day. For decades, presidents have acknowledged Dr. Seuss in their Read Across America Day proclamations. Barack Obama famously said that pretty much all the stuff you need to know is in Dr. Seuss. But Joe Biden shunned Dr. Seuss this year following a concerted campaign to brand him and his works as racist. On the same day, six Dr. Seuss books were pulled from circulation by his estate, citing concerns that they portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong. Last week, a school district in Virginia told its teachers not to connect Teach Across America Day with Dr. Seuss because of the strong racial undertones in his books. Tom, what have you make of this latest cancellation? It's absolutely bizarre, really. And I think one of the things that is really striking about it is the bad faith in our cultural debate about cancellations, about its attempts to purge culture and history. Because there's a lot of people who came out and said, Dr. Seuss hasn't been cancelled. His estate has decided to unpublish some of these books. People are deciding to downplay him. And this is a point that Sean Collins made on Spike this week, is that that just completely misses the dynamic of this. Mm. Because there's many instances in which these sort of woke zealots will not specifically, as a large group of people, demand that someone be pulled down. But it's a, it's a concerted campaign of demonization. And if you go around basically calling Dr. Seuss a racist constantly, saying that that is basically his primary legacy, or at least a large part of it, then, of course, the natural response to that, the climate that creates, is one in which he has to kind of be expunged from public life. It's quite striking in Dr. Seuss's case, not least because, as you say, Fraser, how recently he was still very much embraced even by like someone like Barack Obama, but also the fact that whilst he did in some ways reflect some of the prejudices of his time, there was also a lot of progressive satirical content to what he did. There's a, a BBC story from 2019 that's been doing the rounds after all this has come up, just pointing out the sort of work he was doing during the Second World War, criticising nationalism and fascism and the original America First policy, if you like, as well as the kind of quite explicitly anti-racist messages of books like The Sneetches, which was in inspired by his opposition to anti-Semitism. And whilst, again, given the fact that he was working in a particular time, you know, there were some cartoons of the Japanese and the internment, which he would later express regret for, etc. The, the idea that his primary legacy <laughs> is mm. one of being some sort of horrendous racist, I think, speaks to the sort of philistinism of this whole movement. And the other thing that I just always find so striking about this, this kind of willingness to just dispense with people, regardless of how big their contribution, is just how pale culture becomes in response to that, what's going to replace it? Especially with the sort of art and culture that's made these days, which is so stiff and ideological and uninteresting. Are we going to go from, you know, Dr. Seuss to anti-racist baby? Is that basically <laughs> what is the alternative? So on the one hand, all this is just nuts. But I think also if you apply this kind of litmus test to everything, whilst at the same time ensuring that culture that is produced in the here and now must also always fit with some kind of predetermined ideological agenda culture is only going to be the more poorer for it. So it's a saying things like we're going to discuss the cancellation of Dr. Seuss might seem quite silly, but the, the undertone to it is, is pretty sinister, especially considering how much power these nutcases seem to have these days. Ella? No one, even the kind of maddest racist, is taking these books and saying, look, everyone who comes from Africa wears grass skirts. It's just a completely reductive way of looking at the way in which children learn and the way in which children read 
I mean, Dr. Zeus would be one book that you would read your kid and it's perfectly reasonable. You don't have to have a kind of, a kind of lecture on racism and a lecture on the context of anti-Japanese prejudice in America in the 1900s to get kids to understand, you know, ask questions and say, well, that's, that's not what we think now. You don't have to ban these books out of existence. And it is just an incredibly crass, and sort of Philistine way of looking at an author to suggest that, as Sean Collins writes in his piece for Spike this week, that you'd brand Dr. Seuss with a big red R and that he is forever more racist and not actually look at what the real worth of his work is, which is about getting kids to read. But, you know, there is a particularly with the kind of resources that we give young children, young children's books and cartoons, there's a real panic at the moment, which misunderstands in particular the, you know, the nature of child development and the way in which children take things in and learn from things. I mean, there was, it's not a book, but there was a panic recently about the new Danish cartoon, John Dillamond, which is a like, fantastic cartoon about a man with a big, long, extendable penis. His <laughs> penis gets him into trouble. It's John Dillamond is John Penis Man. And it's actually incredibly modern moral cartoon it's for it's for quite small kids and there was a feminist backlash kind of in the style of me too saying well what is this teaching children about men you know it's teaching children that that men cannot keep their penis in their pants and it's terrible it's going to raise a <laughs> nation of rapists and i mean seriously in the same way that some people are suggesting that we will be raising a nation of racist babies if we allow them to read dr seuss no kind of consideration of parental input there no consideration of kids actually being a lot smarter than some people make them out to be and being able to make decisions and think about things or just more simply the fact that there are some things which are enjoyable and you don't have to have a political sermon about them whether that be dr zeus or silly cartoons and so what often happens with these things is that in the framework of caring about what kids get exposed to we have adult discussions adult panics about whether it be identity politics or the kind of the shallow nature of anti-racism today and frame it in terms of this kind of you know mary whitehouse style won't someone please think about the children and what the children are exposed to it's perfectly reasonable for people to explain to kids that you know times have moved on but we seem to be having a really reductive view of culture i mean huckleberry finn is another really great example and it's linked to what's happening with dr seuss huckleberry finn by mark twain being taken off the curriculum particularly in america in lots of schools because of the use of the n-word despite the fact that the reason why mark twain put the n-word in the mouth of huck was to teach the reader a lesson about the abhorrence of of racism so in the pursuit of kind of woke washing what kids are exposed to we're actually giving them a really crude shallow view of of history this is yet another example of how absolutely core to the kind of identitarian view of the world is just a complete contempt for other people especially ordinary people people who haven't been educated to use their parlance to pick up on the on the right cues to to understand what's racist and and what isn't because it is so reductive it is this kind of you know, monkey see, monkey do view of the world. People cannot be exposed to this or they will think that. And I think one of the things that's really striking is, you know, just how far this has gone. I mean, you know, we're talking about what should be a silly topic, but it has reached the president of the United States. Joe Biden is taking part effectively in his decision to shun Dr. Seuss in this cancellation campaign. And I remember... (laughs) 
could there have been a more wrong argument before the US election that Joe Biden was the person who was going to bring calm to the culture wars, mm. who was going to simmer down the tensions and who was going to tame the woke excesses because the orange man had gone away and that was what was really driving it? I think we've seen the complete opposite, that actually the American president is very happy to indulge these ridiculous complaints and our culture is much poorer for it. Tom. No, definitely. Shout out to the anti-woke liberals who genuinely thought that was going to happen because things have so <laughs> accelerated as, as a result of this. I think the question all of this also raises is because because the examples or the battlegrounds in the culture are becoming more and more ridiculous, it's very easy for people to try and characterise or to caricature our side of the argument as being obsessed with trivialities. But the complete opposite is true. And no one is starting a culture war by responding to the cancellation of Dr. Seuss with bemusement and concern. <laughs> you see this time and time again, where essentially you have particular activists or just a broader cultural atmosphere that says that Dr. Seuss is a horrible racist and therefore shouldn't be celebrated and read to children, that says Mr. Potato Head has got to go because that's somehow discriminatory or whatever, that says that Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima have to go because they're somehow racial stereotypes. And as soon as anyone turns around and says, what? They're <laughs> accused of starting a culture war. That mm. seems to be the dynamic which exists at the moment. And whilst it's important not to get bogged down into what are often arguments over what can feel like quite trivial matters, they started it and their politics is so absurd that it is genuinely of the view that a mascot on a pack of rice or a children's book series beloved for 50 years is fundamentally the way through which a white supremacist society is maintained. <laughs> they genuinely believe that. So in all of this, they're the ones who are being ridiculous, not the people who are turning around to all of this and asking what the hell they're going on about. Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider, or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.